Guys, welcome to episode number 406. Uh, This is an interview that the Highlander Hunting Podcast over at highlanderhunting.com. John and Mike uh, did an interview with me a while back, and uh, this episode was featured on their podcast. And uh, these are two great guys out of uh, Calgary, uh, Alberta, Canada. And I hope you guys enjoy this episode Welcome back, guys. It's Highlander Hunting. Whether you are a beginner or expert hunter, our goal is to provide you with the helpful information on backcountry hunting on public lands. I'm Mike McRae. And I'm John McCann. And today, guys, we've got a really special guest. It's Jay Scott. If you guys are online at all or listen to podcasts, you've probably heard of him. Um, As a matter of fact, I think if you search hunting uh, through one of your podcast things, Jay's usually the first one to pop up. He's got a ton of downloads. Um, His podcasts are great and have great content in it. Uh, he's a successful deer, turkey, elk, and uh, sheep guide. Um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Jay, but I think you spend most of your time in, in the southwest states. And John and I were talking about um, heading out for coos deer hunting next January. Uh, it's going to be kind of our one of our first destination hunts. So welcome to the show. Guys, I'm excited to be on. Uh, it's uh, always a great time of year to be talking uh, I, I do have to say I'm down here in Phoenix, Arizona, actually Scottsdale, and uh, it's about 74 degrees. I'm in shorts, and I know you guys are up in Canada, uh, but we're super blessed down here where I live in the southwest to have really mild weather, and um, it's, been a, it's been a few, you know, a couple of months here of just absolutely beautiful weather. Nice. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm anxious to talk to you guys. Looking forward to it. Yeah, we can't say the same about the weather right now. It's actually in a warm spurt right now. I don't know what it is right today, negative 5 degrees Celsius. I think it's, so? above, it's above zero now, it? so it's above freezing now, Jay. Um, but we had oh some yeah, we had some minus 30s there right around Christmas time. So, uh, yeah, it can, it can get a bit chilly. Yeah, I was actually surprised. Oh, you, we visited, uh, been in Utah a few times, and usually in the springtime, and it's surprising actually how cool it can get at night there. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's a different kind of cool, too. It's, um, you know, it's, it, depending on where you're at, uh, people go down and hunt with me in Mexico and such, and they see the weather, you know, between, say, 25 degrees and, you know, 70 degrees, and they're like, oh, should I bring a jacket? And I'm like, buddy, you have no idea how cold <laughs> the desert is at 25 degrees. I don't know what it is about the air, but when it's 25 in the desert, it can it can cold cold yeah yeah it just gets right to your bones hey yeah for sure so jay how was your how was your hunting season for 2017 how'd you do you know it's we're kind of um right in the middle of it to be honest with you uh uh we are here in a few days headed to sonora mexico to do our tuesday hunts which is our annual hunt in sonora mexico we hunt northern sonora and uh, we leave this Thursday, actually, to head down, and we do two fully guided trips back-to-back where we have a travel day on each side and seven full days of hunting in between, and we're ended up, we're gone for 18 or 19 days straight mm-hmm. uh, with, with two different groups going to two different ranches, so everybody gets to hunt a fresh ranch. Um, but backing up, uh, it, it's, it's definitely been a good year. Uh, I actually took a position... Uh, a friend of mine bought a ranch in uh, south-central Colorado. Uh, he bought it in September, a uh, 40,000-acre uh, private ranch, and uh, wanted me to, to manage the hunts on the property. 
Uh, but the interesting thing is actually the, the hunt, we didn't do any hunts this fall, uh, and we're looking at possibly doing some hunts this coming fall, but uh, we spent, me and a kid named Hunter that works for me, uh, we spent pretty much all uh, October, November uh, putting out trail cameras, uh, glassing some different knobs, basically learning the ranch, familiarizing ourselves with the elk and the mule deer and the turkey that live on the property. Uh, and I was fortunate, Hunter Meekum, uh, he works for me. He, he's a big lion hunter, comes from a real historic lion hunting family uh, out of Utah. And um, he actually brought his dogs up and uh, I was able to kill uh, Harvest the Lion uh, with dogs and it was an amazing uh time to watch those dogs really working and you know what's ironic is that's actually the 44th mountain lion uh that i've seen with my own eyes and it's the first time i've ever killed one well. uh I, I have a lot of history with mountain lions doing the two-steer hunts in sonora mexico since 1999 i've had a, a lot of opportunity to do a lot of long-range glassing and 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 you know looking at a lot of deer and it in 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 turn i guess uh one of the benefits of that is we get to see a lot of lions. You know, we, we definitely average a couple of, of, of lions a year and sometimes, you know, four, five, six lions um, in, in a season. Um, but it was the 44th lion that I've actually seen, and it's the first one I harvested. And it was just a really neat experience and a nice, mature tom. Uh, and that, that was a lot of fun. Awesome. Um, and, then, um, and then I didn't draw any tags myself. Uh, uh, for for personal hunts, uh, but I was able to guide a desert bighorn sheep hunter uh, here in Arizona in my home state on December 1st. My client was able to harvest a beautiful ram, real high-scoring, uh, beautiful ram, especially for the unit, 10-year-old ram, hmm. uh, and that was a really rewarding hunt. My client actually uh, uh, hurt in an accident. He's in his 50s, but... Uh, when he was 18, he got paralyzed from the waist down, and so actually, oh, wow. we he had a what's called a champ permit, which allows you to hunt from a vehicle in the state of Arizona. And um, I knew that it was going to be a fairly tough task to, uh, you know, get a bighorn sheep from the vehicle. But we 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 were actually very fortunate, um, and I had some buddies of mine that had been watching the big ram, and uh, sure enough, we found them the day before the season, and basically watched him and were able to get him the next day and he's the biggest ram shot in the unit and uh, uh, just a big beautiful uh, beautiful ram oh he must have been pretty happy with that then super happy super stoked uh, incredible guy um, he owns a gun shop here in uh, Scottsdale actually a real high end uh, uh, shotgun and antique type gun uh, his dad has passed away but his dad I think the family business I think it's like 50 or 55 years um, in business they started it in Southern California but it's um, it's uh, called William Larkin and Moore and if anybody's into antique guns or side-to-side shotguns they probably know um, you know they sell guns anywhere from you know three thousand dollars up to 150,000 or even more for some of these um, real antique uh, shotguns but just a really neat guy knows a ton about uh, firearms and it was really fun to kind of um you know hunt with them and scout with them and and um was real happy when he got a really nice ram 
That's cool. Uh, question about uh, your desert bighorns. So, um, like, what kind of country are you? Are you hunting those in an alpine environment or? So, so our our desert bighorn are. We have desert bighorn kind of throughout the whole state of Arizona, and we have two types of uh, bighorns, uh, desert bighorns. We have the Mexicana, uh, which are primarily safe, just as a general rule of thumb, like from Phoenix south to the Mexican border, and we have a lot of them in the western deserts. And then we've got our Nelson Eye, our Nelson Eye desert bighorn, which are kind of in the northwest part of the state, uh, up by Kingman, and up along the Nevada and Utah border, um, all the way up to the Kaibab Plateau, and even in units 9 and 10, those are the Nelson Eye. Okay. Uh, but the country that they inhabit is uh, basically your desert, uh, from desert floor of, say, you know, 500 feet uh, elevation up to, say, um, you know, probably 3,000 feet to 2,500 feet for the Mexicana. Um, but then the Nelsonites live up in northwest Arizona, and that elevation is, you know, usually around 3,000 to 5,000 feet. Okay. Uh, our Rocky Mountain bighorn, we have a great, uh, uh, we have big trophy quality Rocky Mountain bighorn. They live in more of our alpine uh, country, and they're found mostly in eastern Arizona, uh, as well as central Arizona around that Camp Verde area. Okay. Uh, but, you know, Arizona is a, is a super trophy oriented state where a long time ago they decided to manage more for upper age class animals, more for higher end trophies. Uh, and it, you know, has gotten the reputation over the years of, of being a state that, you know, you can, you can draw and go harvest, you know, what, whether it be a mule deer, a coot deer, a sheep, an elk, um, you know, whatever it may be, uh, most of those animals, the trophy quality is very high because of the amount of tags that are limited. And, you know, one of the greatest opportunities for people outside of the draw is, you know, the over-the-counter deer hunts, which you can come down and hunt right during the peak of the rut, uh, either for a coos deer or a mule deer with your bow in the month of, of January. And um, it's an awesome opportunity to kind of experience the deer down here and you hunt them right in the peak of the rut. You know, that'd be so cool. And for us up here, you know, like our, you know, for the majority of uh, people in Western Canada, November 30th is the end of our uh, hunting season. Unless you have a late season um, special draw, special draw or like cow elk tag. So it, that's a really great way to extend your season sure and get is. away from the minus 30 for a little while. Yeah, no kidding. I got a question for you, G. Um, just out of curiosity, your Rocky Mountain bighorns you were talking, um, you were saying they don't uh, a lot a whole lot of tags, and so the herds are really healthy. Uh, as an American, like how how often can you hunt them? Well, to be honest with you, Mike, um, in the state of Arizona, you can only harvest one bighorn sheep in your lifetime. So okay. you can harvest a Rocky Mountain bighorn one, and then you can harvest one desert bighorn, whether it be a Mexicana or Nelson I. You can only harvest one. So, you know, the answer, always on the guide's test, uh, there's a question, how many bighorn can you harvest in the state of Arizona? Well, the answer is two. You can harvest mm -hmm. one Rocky Mountain. You can harvest one uh, desert bighorn. Uh, but they're very difficult to draw. Most of the tag, you know, you can draw a, a, a sheep tag, a, a desert bighorn sheep tag. I mean, I've heard of people drawing with no points. And I actually guided a few years ago uh, a young girl named Avery Elms. I want to say she was like 12 or 
I see every year you hear of it where someone with, you know, zero to say three points that is a non-resident drawing a tag. So don't ever think that you can't draw. But I also know people, uh, George Richardson, who actually harvested a ram in the same unit that I guided this year. Uh, he's 81 years old and has been applying before they even had bonus points. So I think he had like 28 or 29 points and he still hadn't drawn his tag, and he finally drew this year. Wow, that's awesome. That's one thing where we count our blessings here. Believe it or not, we can hunt uh, Rocky Mountain Bighorn on a general tag here every year. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a great opportunity for Canadian citizens, uh, for sure. Um, you know, the success isn't very high, and, you know, it's always a trade-off. Um, the way I look at it is, you know, people ask me, would you rather live in a state where you could hunt everything over the counter? And my answer is, yeah, that'd be cool. But uh, but most totally over-the-counter states or very liberal states as far as giving out tags here in the United States, their quality isn't very good. Right, yeah. And I've kind of gotten to the point where I like going out and seeing big, mature animals uh, and... You know, growing up here in Arizona, you kind of, in a way, get jaded in that you're so used to high-end trophy quality that, you know, you do become jaded. Um, but I feel like it's awesome to have those opportunities. Just like in Colorado, there's tons of over-the-counter elk opportunities where you can, every year, whether you're a resident or a non-resident, you can just go and buy a tag and go archery elk hunting when they're bugling over-the-counter. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great, but there's also lots of areas you go to where it just gets pounded and actually the quality of hunt is not as good. So it's kind of a trade-off. One thing that Arizona, we do, it is awesome. When you do get a tag, pretty much no matter what it's for, the, the quality of the hunt is phenomenal and the experience is out of this world. Excellent. You know, uh, just as an observation um, from a Canadian point of view is that up here... You don't ever really hear provinces talk about how they're managing uh, the resource. Like you don't, you don't often hear say, "Oh, we're we're managing for opportunity, or we're managing for age class." So I think it's really, uh, it's it's really interesting from our point of view to hear um, that that's a, you know that's it's a discussed thing, and that there's a goal that they're trying to achieve down mm-hmm. there, you know, and I. I find that really interesting. Like we interviewed a guy from Idaho named Robbie Denning, and we were talking about mule deer, and um, and in his he has a book as well. And in his book, he uh, he talks about how various states are managing their herds. And again, for Canadian, that's it's um, it's new. It's a new conversation. Yeah. It's just not one that we ever hear locally. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, we are pretty fortunate in that a lot of our conservation groups, you know, whether it be the uh, Arizona Deer Association, the Arizona Desert Bighorn Sheep Society, the Arizona Elk Society, um, Arizona Bowhunters Association, whatever it might be, these groups actually have um, quite a bit of say in, you know, in the public meetings and, and you know, the feedback to the wildlife managers. Uh, and, um, you know, it's pretty neat to have a, be able to have somewhat of a voice and somewhat of a uh, input into you know how our states manage mm-hmm. yeah that's great well jay what do you think are you ready to talk some coos deer i'm always ready to talk coos deer you know you guys probably caught me at a great time because you know i 
been going down to Mexico since 1999, and you know we leave on Thursday, and I'm just fired up about it, and and uh, we're all systems go, and Dar and I've been getting our groceries and getting everything all ready, and you know getting the Rangers and and right. trailers and everything packed and uh, getting the outfits, getting everything ready. So yeah, let's talk some coots there for sure. Great, right on. So let's start off right at the base here. Um, when I started listening to your podcast there, I actually had to Google to see what a coos deer looked like. So uh, for one of us that's wanting to come down and hunt next year, uh, can you just describe coos deer uh, to us and how would they differ from the deer we're used to seeing up here, the whitetail and mule deer? Yeah, so the whitetail and mule deer that you're used to seeing, I'm going to guess are somewhere on the hook, you know, in that you know 200 pound plus, maybe even up into the 300s, you can correct me there, but you know, yep. a much, much bigger body. Uh, the coos deer that we're hunting in Arizona and in Sonora, and there's a few over in uh, kind of uh, western New Mexico, that's really the only place that coos deer are found. Uh, you're looking at a big buck, it's going to probably be 110 pounds. Oh, wow. um, you know, like, you know, from young bucks, you know, anywhere from 75 pounds on up to that, you know, the big buck, 110. Maybe you might get a giant that's 110. 1500 maybe 120 pounds but you know 110 is probably a good uh, general rule of thumb uh they're probably going to be about a mature buck it's probably going to be about the size of maybe your yearling fawns okay my guess um but you know that 100 pound where your does are going to weigh in at that you know probably you know 65 to 90 pounds, I would guess, and your bucks are going to be, you know, that 75 to that, you know, 110 pound range. Uh, now, keep in mind, the one thing about coos deer that's so awesome is because they have smaller bodies, uh, when their racks, they get over 100 inches, they start to look really big on their head. I can't tell you how many uh, Midwestern or uh, Eastern uh, you know, U.S. guys that I've had, and 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 even some guys from Canada, um, where when they see a big coos deer, they freak out. They're like, "That thing's giant! That's a monster!" <laughs> well, you know how when your big deer, you know, weighs three hundred pounds, they kind of mask or they kind of shrink that rack up. Uh, whereas the body, you know, a big body, one hundred and ten pounds. You know, you put a 100-inch or bigger rack on, on a coos deer, on the hoof, on their head, they look they look big. Hmm. Wow, that's pretty cool. Um, they're really neat deer. They're a real um, petite, um, beautiful deer. Uh, they're extremely wary. Uh, you know, their whole life, from the time they're born, they're, you know, coyotes are trying to eat them, bobcats are trying to eat them. Mountain lions are trying to eat them, and then, of course, you know, we're trying to hunt them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're extremely wary. Um, it's often said for coos deer hunters uh, down here that, you know, where did they go? They dug a tunnel, and they just disappeared. And, you know, if you take your eye off them, you run the risk of, of never seeing them again. Um, and, you know, it, it, it can be a challenge to find them. And then once you do find them, it can be a challenge to keep your eye on them, uh, you know, and uh, they're they're fairly nocturnal deer, uh, meaning when you have big full moons, uh, you got to watch out that they're not going to lay all day and, and you know party all night, so to speak, <laughs> yeah. all night. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know they they're they're really keen and aware, and they hold tight like a quail. So <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> walking up on them, 
you know, you're, you, they can be tough because they can hold and you think, man, I, I must have spooked them. And then you look over and they're literally like 15 yards away looking at you. And then you lock eyes with them and they just squirt out of there, you know, but they'll hold really, really tight, hmm. which for a bow hunter can work to your advantage as long as you know that, okay, he's still right there and I'm getting really, really close and I need to, you know, be ready, have your release on your string and, you know, be ready to pull back because he's literally right here within bow range. Um, they are what I would consider probably one of the best trophies you can harvest with a bow. Um, it's not something that I've really focused on, mainly because when you can hunt them with a the bow, uh, I've been since 99 uh, spending the majority of my time in Sonora, Mexico, um, chasing them, you know, in December and January. But I have a lot of friends that hunt them, uh, you know, every year in Arizona uh, with a bow and arrow. And, you know, they'll jump the string on you so fast you won't even know what hits you. Um, and, you know, I say any coot deer with a bow spot and stock is a great deer. Um, you know, and you can also sit water. There's lots of other tactics you can use. But one-on-one spot and stock coot deer with a bow and arrow is about as difficult as it comes as far as actually getting one killed. Okay. So when you're uh, when you're looking for them and you're scouting for them, what kind of habitat are you looking for? Is it the like creek bottom type thing, or are they on the sides of mountains, or where would you find them? So coos deer primarily range from, and just speaking in generalities, they're going to range from about thirty five hundred feet up to probably about seven thousand feet. With if I had to pick a one thousand foot, you know, uh, range of, of you know coos habitat, I would say between four and five thousand. Um, and they are often found in, you know, the low, the, the lowest they'll be found is like the low deserts with Ocotillo and a lot of cactus, um, ironwood and Palo Verde. And then kind of the next, uh, uh, zone up is, you know, kind of the zone I like the most where you've got the mix of Ocotillo cactus, which if you guys have seen them, you know, kind of starts at the base and then there's basically just, you know, eight to 10 to 12, 15, like sticks going up and then each one of those sticks have little pokers on them. Oh, yeah. Um, that's Ocotillo. So from the Ocotillo kind of desert on up into the yellow grass uh, country of, say, southern Arizona that has a lot of mesquite trees. Um, and then as you keep climbing in elevation, you, you kind of roll out of the Ocotillo and mesquite into the next zone, which is kind of the oaks. Um, you know, we have white oaks. We have all sorts of oaks, but, you know, our oaks are going to be a smaller oak that's probably, um, say, 10 feet tall, maybe, you know, depending, there's some bigger oaks, but, you know, 10, shorter than the big oak trees that you'd see, like, in California or maybe even in the Midwest where, mm-hmm. you know, you have these giant trees. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so that's kind of the oak and yellow grass, and then you move on up into the pine, uh, and, and the deer and the pines. Uh, you know, the coos deer can live right there in the pine trees as well. So they're an unbelievable deer in the fact that they have a huge zone that they can live in. But the general rule of thumb is, you know, that, you know, 3,500 to say 5,000 or, you know, four to 5,000 feet is, is kind of prime time, you know, money zone for coos deer. And pretty much anywhere in Arizona, um, say south of Flagstaff, if you get in that zone that, you know, Say four to five thousand feet, you're most likely going to have coos deer. Okay. Okay. Oh, they they sound wild. Um, so if you're hunting around there, so they're obviously pretty adaptable. 
Um, for the new guy going down there, like, is there any kind of food source or something they really like in their diet that would they would pick above others, like something that a hunter can target or concentrate on? I would definitely target mesquite, uh, ocotillo mesquite and oak trees. Um, and, you know, you can go pretty much anywhere from, say, Tucson south and go anywhere you want over 3,000, over 3,500 feet up to, say, 5,000, and you will get up on a high point and glass around and you're going to find food deer. Uh, the mule deer are going to inhabit the lower country and sometimes, in some cases, the higher country. Um, but typically your desert mule deer are going to be in the lower, you know, below 3,000 feet, whereas the cooster kind of start at 3,000. Um, but if you Google any photos, you know, southern Arizona grassland or just Google, you know, southern Arizona mesquite country or southern Arizona oak country, you'll get kind of a, a visual of what I'm talking about. And it's that kind of beautiful rolling, um, you know, and sometimes very rugged, but it's that yellow grass with that con- contrast of either the mesquite or the oak trees. Um and that's where you'll find your Tuesday. Okay. So uh, seasonally, do they have a migration pattern? Like, are you uh, expecting them to move with the spring or with the rainy season? So Tuesday are very, um, comparing them to other animals, they're very home range oriented. They're very much home body. Uh, you know, a, a doe, uh, you know, might live. There, there was a study that was done probably 20-some years ago by Richard Ockenfeld. Um, I'm not sure if he was out of Arizona State or out of U of A, uh, but I've read this study many times, and it just, they collared a bunch of deer, and it showed how when a, when a fawn is born into one piece of country, they live and die their whole life in that country, and they very rarely travel out of an 800-yard circle. Oh, that's and but the real tight-range, real home-range-oriented, Granted, if they get pushed or pressured or what have you, they can move to adapt, but they most of the time will live within an 800-yard circle their entire life. Now, the only thing that throws that out, um, to answer your question, uh, John, um, was, you know, the buck in the rut. So, you know, kind of mid to late December when those bucks start to, you know, want to chase does, which the month of January is kind of the prime rut in a general nutshell for coos deer, those bucks can travel, you know, two, three, four, five miles. Um, but the does themselves usually are a very tight home range. Usually they have one or two water sources within that 800-yard circle, and, you know, they, they stay put. Now, one of the things that you can do as a hunter to use that as your advantage is when you find a buck any time other than, say, after December 15th, or excuse me, before December 15th and after January 30th, so, you know, 11 and a half or 10 and a half months out of the year, that buck is probably going to be within two or 300 yards of where you just saw him for 10 and a half months. Wow. So our rifle seasons that we have in Arizona, we have pretty liberal as far as tag numbers in October and November where you can hunt with a rifle. Um, if you find a big giant buck, more than likely, if unless someone gets in there and pushes him or, you know, kicks him out and, you know, he, he feels so much pressure that he leaves the area, he 
will live right in that small circle of a couple hundred yards his whole the whole year. Okay. So a lot of times guys are out there in the summer and they're patterning these deer when they're in velvet and you know either hunting them in our August archery season, which is over the counter, uh, or you know scouting them all of when they're growing their antlers June, July, August, and September, and then trying to harvest them then in the October, that first rifle season, because of their home bodiness, because they stay in a small circle. Okay. Well, when you're when you guys are talking about coming down either in the December or the January seasons, where when the rut is on, you want to focus mainly on areas where there's lots of does, and where there's lots of does, those bucks will show up. Now, granted, I'm not going to tell you that a big buck that you watch in the summer isn't going to rut in that same circle that he's he's in, you know, in January. But a lot of times, those bucks actually leave that that country and go seeking does. And they'll try and breed as many does as they can, so they, they travel around a lot. You know, just think about it. if you could only, um, you know, breed once a year, you'd probably put a major focus on it as well. <laughs> yeah, right. Yep. <laughs> so um, when when a guy's going down there to scout, um, so I, like I'm making the assumption that the scarce resource is water, and it, it should that be, you know. Um, where you focus your energy if you're using say google earth uh to do a little bit of e-scouting before you head on down there if you're doing the diy style of hunting is it look for water and then get down there and look for does to verify that area i mean i think that's a good starting point on a year like this where we're in a severe drought here and everything is oriented and focused on water i think any of the guys listening that are going down this season um, yes, it's all about water. Those deer are going to be within a half mile of water would be my bed, and especially the does. Um, and it hasn't rained, so we've got, you know, no pocket water in the bottom of the canyon, so they are, um, you know, honed in or, <coughs> excuse, excuse me, uh, dialed in on, on water. But even more importantly than doing your research on Google Earth, I, I would myself talk to wildlife managers for each unit, mm-hmm. each area that you're thinking of concentrating on. I would call and talk to the uh, forest, you know, look on the map and see whether it's, uh, you know, whatever national forest it is and try and talk to individuals about certain areas uh, within those units um, that, you know, are good mountain ranges and, and on the Game and Fish website alone, you can go in, say, Unit 34A or 33 or 36, whatever unit you're choosing, and there's usually an outline summary from the, the, the Game and Fish officer, the wildlife manager that works that unit, and he'll say, you know, like, Temporal Canyon is a good one to try, and, you know, like, uh, Madera Canyon and, and, you know, Redfield Canyon, um, you know, from the road, Forest Service Road, XYZ to XYZ, you know, is a good area. And so I would start there. Okay. And then from, from there, then I would break it down and say, okay, I think I'm gonna, think I'm gonna focus on Unit 34A or Unit 35B or Unit, you know, whatever, maybe 31, whatever unit. And then, then I would talk to the unit manager in that unit. Find out, you know, the higher concentrations of areas. Ask them questions where, you know, where do the hunters go? Um, you know, are there areas that, you know, there is good concentrations but maybe the hunters don't get to? Those would all be questions that 
I asked. And, um, you know, on my, on my podcast, we cover a lot of, you know, specific how to scout, what you would be doing. Um, but I think rather than, you know, going, going pipe originally, I would probably start a little broad and then try and focus maybe on two units. Then I would try and learn as much as I can about two units, and then maybe I would just pick one, and then I would hone in and I would Google Earth and put, you know, label all the roads, label all the two-track roads, label all the water sources, start identifying, you know, glassing points, big cone knobs, ridge lines, you know, um, stuff like that to... Uh, to be able to, uh, you know, move forward with your hunt, so to speak. Okay. Good. Um, so you mentioned, uh, mentioned uh, phoning the Fish and Game office, and that's, I find, something, too, that's quite different between up here in Canada and the U.S. Like, talking to a, a wildlife manager is not something that's usually talked about usually up here. Yeah. So for guys like John and myself that are green at it and going in blind... If they phone the Game and Fish office, so it's the wildlife manager we want to ask for? Yeah, I would ask for the wildlife manager for that unit. Okay. Um, and they are very accustomed to talking to hunters and dialing hunters in. Now, I would not be calling them right now, right before the season. Mm-hmm. I would go ahead and call them more in their downtime. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, so, Jay, uh, you mentioned uh, prime ruts for the coos deer is in January. Um, most guys is going to be the way John and I are going to operate. Like, usually we're going to probably have a week window to do it. If you had to pick any week in January, is there one that's better than the other? Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you only have one week and you have the ability and the opportunity to pick the prime week, is I, I would plan on coming, and it differs a little bit in the part of the state that you're going in, so near Tucson in what I would call southern Arizona I would probably pick from about January 10th to about January 20th that's a 10 day window there when if you're only coming down for a week period I would want to come down when I know that the deer are actively seeking and chasing does yeah okay especially when you come down for your first time I think the ability to be able to glass deer chasing does when they're in their most vulnerable stage is your best opportunity. So definitely January 10th to January 20th, year in and year out, that is going to be a great window. Okay. Now, if there is a major bright full moon during that period, you may want to um, you know, hedge it one way or another. Because hunting during a full bright moon, if they're not rutting yet, so if they're just starting, it sometimes can slow them down. Mm-hmm. But year in and year out, January 10th through January 20th is, is you know it's prime time. Now, when you start talking about some of the central Arizona units, and you're in the 22, the 23, the 6 days, uh, some of those units, it's at a higher elevation, and it's it, it's in a northern, more northern. And so they rut a little bit earlier. So I would say more like, you know, a January 5th through like a January 15th. Just a little bit earlier. Um, Quite honestly, any time the month of January is good. But if you can really hone in on that mid part of January and try and hit that peak time when they're really actively chasing does, that's when 
you're going to come down and probably have the most opportunity. Now, keep in mind, those deer are going to, those bucks are going to be chasing does actively and moving around a lot, which actually can create an, a whole nother issue for bow hunters in that, you know, you go to make your stock and the deer is literally, the buck is literally chasing the other, you know, the does around and other bucks off that by the time you get over there, they're three ridges over. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. But what it allows you to do is it allows you to get up and glass these deer, watch them, and what I recommend is watch them for a while before you just go taking and making a stock. Mm-hmm. Watch how they chase does around, and they constantly are chasing them around, and they come through the same saddle, and you just sat there and you watch them, and they're chasing this doe, and they just keep coming through the same saddle. I would go and try and get in that saddle and just try and utilize that pattern that you just watched them doing because they'll literally chase a doe all day long. And mm-hmm. then when a doe is really hot, you could have four, five, six, seven bucks on one doe. Oh, well. And you could have hellacious fighting. Um, you know, for as small as they are, they're, they're very, very hardy in, um, you, you know, they've got a lot of fight and they've got a lot of heart and they, you know, they don't give up easy and, um, uh, you can use that movement to your advantage if you have the ability to get in pretty close, have the wind in your favor, and let them kind of make it happen and let them come to you, so to speak. Okay. Okay. So um, what's their pattern typically during the daylight then? Well, when it's in the peak of the rut, they only have one thing on their mind, yeah. and that's chase does, that's breed does. They don't even care about eating. They don't care about anything. Okay. And quite honestly, they'll do it all night as well if the does will let them. Okay. One of the challenges, like I was saying, when there's a full moon is if there's a real bright moon, they're going to rut and chase does all night. And then the does are going to be tired, so they're going to be wanting to lay down. And so you'll, you won't get as much activity during daylight hours. Um, when it's a dark moon, they're, because of they want to stay alive and not get eaten by lions, they're going to stay down and stay hunkered and stay bedded. So your best case scenario is when you have dark moon periods, cold temperatures, uh, and those peak, you know, seven to, t- seven to ten day windows of when the deer, you know, the does are cycling when they're really going to be ready. Okay. So by the sounds of it, like this is a lot of a the spotting game. Um, is there kind of any kind of rattling or calling in strategies you can use to bring them into you during that time? Yeah, now I'll tell you that I don't have a lot of experience myself with it. It's just something that I haven't messed with a whole lot. But I do know people that routinely uh, rattle in bucks and routinely, uh, you know, doe bleak bucks in, other does in, and then, you know, have success shooting bucks. So I would say yes. I mean, get in close to where those deer are and do some rattling. Uh, do some, you know, do some, you know, the old Primos can that you can roll over and kind of goes. Yeah. So I've, I've heard of those working, um, and and I've heard of rattling working as well. Um, and you know, it's like anything else that you go to call. You know, some deer are lovers and some are fighters, and <laughs> you know, some want competition and some don't. I would tell you in general, the coos deer is a very ferocious pound-for-pound animal that, um, you know, is very susceptible to rattling some some antlers together. Okay. Okay. Have you got any other uh, that you know of uh, sort of unique rules down in Arizona that say they're not, 
not common in some of your neighboring states like Utah and Colorado? You got any little oddball ones down there that trip people up? Oh, I mean, there's broadhead requirements, you know, certain <coughs> width of, you know, cutting diameters, and I want to mm-hmm. say it's 45 pounds on, you know, your bow house, you have to be able to pull 45 pounds. I'm uh, not sure if there's a let-off requirement or not, you know, um, 80 and under, 85 and under. It seems like there is no let-off requirement, but I'm not sure. Okay. I, you know, there, I would definitely consult the Game and Fish regulations uh, mm-hmm. for sure. You bet. And, um, you know, before you come down. Yeah, I, sure. I think one thing that needs to be pointed out, you guys I have in your questions, is uh, finding these deer and glassing these deer, um, you, you really need to, to get a tripod. You need to, mm. to be able to see these deer effectively. You need to glass sitting down with a tripod. Now, you've heard me say sitting down. I'll say it again. You need to glass sitting down. <laughs> say it again. You need to glass sitting down. I sound like a broken record. I see it over and over and over. These different people are glassing Tuesday or standing up. And granted, there are times when standing up is, you know, you need to do it because you're on a point. You can't get sitting down. You, there's vegetation or what have you. But to effectively find Tuesday and do it routinely, you need to be sitting down in a comfortable position, either on your butt or on a stool. You need to be glassing with a tripod. If you come down here without a tripod, that is the single biggest mistake I think you could possibly make. You cannot consistently and routinely glass these deer up in the vegetation and where they live without a tripod. Okay. Now, I, I, I cannot be more adamant about you have to have a tripod, period, and you have to mount your binoculars to the tripod so that there's no vibration, if there's no shake. And I can't tell you how many times you find a coos deer, whether it be a doe or a buck, and he'd say he's out there at a 1,000 yards, and you see him plain as day, and you take your eye out of the binos for just a second, you pop back in, and you go, he's gone. Where'd he go? He's gone. You're looking through binoculars that are mounted on a tripod. There's no vibration. There's no shake. And you've just taken your eye out, and you say he's gone. And you're telling your buddy, he was just standing right there in my binos. And he's like, where is he? And then you see an ear flick, or you see a tail flick, or you see a leg move. And he's standing... He or she is standing right in the center of your binos, and you literally thought the deer was gone. If you show up without a tripod to hunt two's deer, I would say you might as well not even come. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, what are you running for binoculars then? What power or ten power for them? Or well, I have ten power. I'm a huge Swarovski fan. Okay. Um, I believe Swarovski optics make the best optic uh, in the world. Uh, I believe, you know, I've tried everything, I've had everything, and, you know, I've had basically every generation of Swarovski's made. The clarity is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, I run 10 power ELs, 10 by 42 ELs. I have the 10 by 42 EL range, Um, but then, you know, I get get more serious with the 15 power, uh, the new 15 power Swarovski's, in my mind, are the ultimate binocular for glassing coos deer and the one thing about 15 power is you can't hand hold 15 power no Uh, 15 power limits your field of view uh uh, you know it has a smaller field of view than 10 but where where the 15 power is really gonna um come out nice is the fact that when you're looking out there at long distances 
and those deer, like I said, are standing stationary. They're not moving, and you know, all of a sudden they flick their ear, and you would never pick that up with a handheld pen. Right. Uh, Jay, out of curiosity, have you had any experience with that Swarovski modular thing? It's the ATX spotting scope with uh, dual eyepieces? Yeah, for sure. Um, I actually was, I got one of the first uh, BTX eyepieces um, when they came into the United States. I, I was fortunate to be one of, one of the first people to get that uh, dual eyepiece. And uh, I'm a Swarovski lover. I, I absolutely, I've had basically all the generations of spotting scopes. I've had, you know, multiple pairs of 15s. Every time they come up with a new 15 power, I'm getting that. You know, I've gone through the, you know, basically all the generations of spotting scopes. I have the, the 95 millimeter, you know, I call it the big daddy, the 30 to 70 uh, power eyepiece. And then when they came out with these BTX, the, the one thing you guys need to know is last season, last Cooster season, I actually switched to uh, I had Dr. Optics, you know, 40 power, super wide angle Dr. Optics, and I used those for years. Then I switched to the Koa Highlander, the 32 by 82. Mm-hmm. You know, they're 14 pounds. The tripod's oh, 14 pounds. I was about 28 and a half pounds before I even put anything in my backpack. Wow. Uh, and, and then last season, uh, I switched to the uh, twin Swarovski spotting scopes, and they're actually the 25 to 50 uh, eyepiece with the 65 millimeter, this is the STS model, and there's actually a, a company out of Prescott, Arizona here, a Wells Manufacturing, that makes a bracket, and I'm basically laughing with two 65 millimeter spotting scopes Holy uh, side by side, and I used them all Easter season last year, and they're seven and a half pounds, which is, you know, I'm saving, you know, seven pounds right there compared to my COAs that I sold well I had used them the full season, and then at the shows, I, I started hearing, uh, I know some of the guys at Swarovski, and they are saying, we're coming out with a dual eyepiece, you know, BTX Swarovski spotter, and, um, you know, they were asking me my opinion on my twin spotters and what have you. Well, anyway, I got the BTX, and uh, I would say my overall impression is that, <coughs> excuse me, the quality is fantastic. The, 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 the ease of use, is like looking through a pair of 10 by 42 uh, EL Swarovski binoculars. Uh, and the quality is great, and the ability to have a 65-millimeter objective, an 85-millimeter objective, or a 95-millimeter objective, and be able to have, you know, both, which is I have the 65 and I have the 95. I don't have the 85. Mm-hmm. But in other words, you can be at 4.14 pounds with the 65-millimeter on the BTX IP, or you can be at 6.5 pounds with the 95. So that's still a, a pound lighter than my twin Swarovski spotting scopes, which I fell in love with Tuesday season last year. Um, and one reason I like them so much is they're so much lighter than the Koa. So now you throw the BTX in the middle, after getting to use them all summer and all fall, is I would tell you that I am a straight IP guy, meaning I've never liked angled spotting scopes. And although I love the BTX and it's lighter than my twin Swarovski spotters, I, I just cannot get used to the angled eyepiece. Now, there's tons of people out there that they say, oh, I like the angled eyepiece better than the straight eyepiece, and so that's perfect for me. 
Mm-hmm. And I would tell you that if Swarovski made them in a straight eyepiece, I would be using the BTX exclusively. But because of the function of it being angled alone, I am here this Cooster season, the twin spotters, you know, I didn't sell them. They're going right back in the line, starting lineup, and I'll be using them Tuesday season. Um, and yes, I'll be carrying one more pound. Uh, but it, for me, the thing, one of the things that I like about the twin spotters is the ability to uh, be on 25 power in my right eye, find a big buck. I can keep my right eye. This is talking about the twin spotters. I'm on 25 power. I keep my right eye on the buck. I reach up with my left hand and I crank the power to 50 on my left eye and focus on my left eye. Then I switch. Now I'm looking through my left eye. I crank it to 50 on my right eye and focus. And in a matter of about 10 seconds, I went from 25 power to 50 power and I never took my eye off of the buck. Oh, well. If that makes sense. Yeah, Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and I can be sitting on my butt and glassing, you know, out, whereas with a a BPX, you have an angled eyepiece, and the angled eyepiece, if you're sitting up high on a knob, and you go to look downhill, in other words, the angle of the eyepiece, you have to then bring your head and your whole body up, because... Now the angle of the objective lens is aiming down, which is making the eyepiece be more even vertical. Right. Which then means you have to use a glassing stool. Hmm. Oh, good point. And being a cooster being a hunter that packs, you know, all kinds of stuff on my back, and the older I get, I'll be 45 next month, you know, the lighter that I can keep things, the better. Mm-hmm. That's a long answer to the question of, yes, the BTX is fantastic. Uh, quality, optical quality is fantastic it's super lightweight pound per pound it's you know it can't be beat but if you're an angled person great if you if if you can't get used to the angle that's a deal killer for me um i still love swarovski optic but i'm definitely using the uh twin spotters uh uh this tuesday season no that makes a lot of sense and i like that idea with the twin spotters how you don't have to take your eyes off them John's uh, looking to upgrade his spotting scope system this year, so we won't be able to tell Chris to that he needs two spotting scopes now. That might, <laughs> that might not fly. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's a great thing. Your wives really like to, to swallow that when you've been trying to tell them you need a new spotting scope, and then you break it to them that not only do you need one, but you need two. Yeah. Yeah. They, re- they really like that. Yeah. Yeah. They really like that. JB talked a little bit earlier on um, kind of as a tactic concentrating on the water holes, and I was just listening to your previous podcast you did on your show um, about coos deer hunting, and there's quite a bit of talk about cougar activity around the um, the watering holes. And I notice a lot of podcasts in the states are quite different than here. There's a lot of talk about being able to carry a sidearm uh, while you're archery hunting, which is completely foreign up here. Like if I if I got into our handgun rules up here, you'd just laugh, but um, uh, for a Canadian going down there that's going to be kind of concentrating on those watering holes where there is going to be high populations of cougars, um, do you offer any kind of uh, advice or precautions a guy should take? Not really. I mean, um, like I said, I, I was able to harvest the, you know, lion in Colorado. That's the 44th one. I've had a couple close encounters, like, you know, two barrel lengths, like encounters, you know, with mountain lions, and yeah, they'll eat you fast. Uh, but there's <laughs> There's, you know, they're they're absolutely (coughs) 
afraid of you. Mm-hmm. Um, the only way they're going to come after you is if you get them cornered or if you get them in a position where, um, you know, they have no choice. As mm-hmm. far as personal protection, it wouldn't be something that I would worry about at all. I would be more worried about, uh, say, uh, you know, illegal aliens or, you know, people crossing over the border, drug runners and, and that kind of such more than a mountain lion. You know, so from a personal protection standpoint, now keep in mind our uh, alien traffic coming across the border has severely died down since President Trump's been in office. Okay. Um, and I, you know, I don't have the exact stats, but um, you know, he he absolutely made a point that they're going to crack down on the border, and they have done so. Now, I would tell you, you know, five to ten years ago, there was it was absolutely the wild west out there. And it's not nothing like what it used to be, but people do need to be aware that if they're com- coming down, that uh, you know you may see some activity, see some people walking, see some people hiking across the desert, and you know I I dealt with it for years, and you just stay away from them. But it is definitely something that you need to know that you know is out there, and I think is a much bigger concern than a mountain lion. Now, okay. keep in mind, you can buy a mountain lion tag, you can shoot them with your bows, you can also bring a, a pistol and wear on your side, and you can shoot them with a handgun or, or what have you. The likelihood of seeing them on a year like this when it's dry, if you're going to sit water exclusively, I mean, you dang sure could have a lion come in and um, right to the water, water tank, and um, you know, it's just something else that you could add that you could hunt while you're down here. Okay. Um, as well as I think I should mention the uh, javelina. Most of the units in January you can put in ahead of time. There are even some over-the-counter units or leftover tag units where you can apply for a javelina tag at the same time, and they cross, uh, you know, the, the same country that the coos deer are in, the javelina are in, and if you're sitting water, for sure, I mean, it's, it's almost, I'll bet in a week, a given that you're going to have shots at Havelina. Um, so if you're going to do that, make sure to put in in the spring uh, ahead of time uh, for those uh, Havelina tags. And you just check the Arizona Game of Fish regulations. There are certain times you can apply for Havelina and what have you, but might as well have a Havelina tag in your pocket at the same time. As well as, guys, I need to mention, like, there's mule deer areas that overlap these coos deer, and it's coos deer and mule deer. So any antler deer um, in those January hunts. So in other words, you can be hunting mule deer or coos deer, and there's lots of units. Like I said, if you're in that you know 2,500 to 3,000 foot range where you have overlapping, where you could see just as many mule deer as you do coos, and um, keep that in mind. It makes it a nice you know deal where you can chase both species of deer at the same time okay uh, for our listeners jay uh do you know like a ballpark price what it would be for the the tags you mentioned uh, i phoned the one office and i think uh as i understood it with everything in it's about 300 dollars us for a canadian to come to arizona and hunt the coos deer uh do you know what it is for javelina mule deer and cougar well just to be clear the mule deer is exactly the same tag so like i was saying it's a mule deer coos deer Oh. actually says any antler deer so it'd be the same price wow. yeah, but now That's... keep in mind you can only shoot one deer it's not one coos deer and one mule deer it's just one antler deer okay gotcha um and, and to answer your question i don't you can go to azgfd.gov 
um, and go right there on the hunting regulations and see the price. I'm going to say it's fairly nominal, uh, you know, hundred bucks, couple hundred bucks. It's, it's price is uh, it's fairly cheap, and it may be even cheaper than that. But I don't know it off the top of my head, no. Okay, uh, Jay, just uh, uh, rewinding a little bit there. So um, you'd mentioned uh, you know the uh, illegal uh, alien crossing um, there, so. Uh, like that just kind of gets me thinking about um, like for example you're uh, so you're guiding down in in northern Mexico and you know uh, and just the whole idea of hunting near that border and the challenges that come with that can you just speak to uh, like you know Canadians we're we're a long long way from that border and that stuff is very very foreign for us and um, so it, can you just uh, sort of just speak on the um, you know, is there is there a crime issue that a person would need to be concerned with, or how? Like, how, can you just speak on that? Because it's all really new to us. Sure. So I would say, in actual Mexico, um, I think you have less issues actually in Mexico than you would in the U.S. Okay. Only, well, it's kind of twofold. When you're in the U.S., you can easily call authorities, call the. Um, you know, border patrol, you can call the sheriff's office, you can call and you can have help there that you can speak English with and tell them what the problem is, whereas you can't when you're in Mexico. But I will tell you, since 1999, you know, spending 60 to 75 days a year between my coos deer and my Gould's turkey hunts down in Sonora, Mexico, I've never had an issue where I felt uncomfortable at all. Okay. I will tell you, like I just said, it is getting better in Arizona, and the illegal alien traffic is getting better, whereas we've cut the numbers of the illegals coming into the U.S. or coming into Arizona by a lot. I don't know the exact percentage, but I'm going to say by like 75%. Okay. I would tell you that from coming in Arizona's perspective, is it's just something you need to be aware of. It's mm-hmm. something that you need to be on alert. Just like if you were hunting in country where there's grizzly bears mm-hmm. or black bears, where is it something that's going to make you not hunt there? No. But is it something that you kind of are aware of what's around you? You know, um, back when it got was really bad, five, to, you know, seven, eight years ago, ten years ago, I mean, people would go down and in their camps, now, granted, we have thousands and thousands of hunters that are hunting the rifle seasons in these units, the archery seasons. We have a huge border patrol presence in these units. But I would hear stories about guys that would set a cooler out 30 yards from their camp, like where the little road pulls in and, you know, like the camp, and they would just set a table, and they would set cups, and they'd set water right out on a table, and they'd put a sign that says, help yourself. I even heard stories where they would put an action packer out there with granola bars and it would basically say, here's water, here's food, help yourself. Hmm. And their idea was if they set that out there while the guys are out hunting during the day, they're not going to come back to their camp and have it ransacked because all they need, all those people want to do is get something to eat and get something to drink. They do not want to hurt you in any way. Yeah. Yeah. Right? They're just trying to cross the border to make a better life for themselves and without, you know, getting political or anything like that. I, I would probably do the same thing if I was in their position, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. But 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 they they need water and they need food. Mm-hmm. Well, what I can tell you is things have gotten a lot better down there. But okay. it's still something that when you hunt in southern Arizona, you always want to be aware. You know, 
Maybe it's not a bad idea to camp in an area where you have real good visual in all directions. Maybe it's not a bad idea to camp next to someone and stop mm-hmm. in and introduce yourself and say, hey, how about I camp you know, 100 yards up the road? We have a couple camps here, which is very common mm-hmm. to kind of have clumps of camps. Mm-hmm. And there's always someone around in camp. You know, maybe that's not a bad idea. I, I, I don't want to bring it up to, to scare anyone at all. But it is something you need to be aware of when hunting in any state along the Mexican border. Those issues have been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's on the- very, very rare to hear of situations where, you know, someone comes into camp and holds hunters at gunpoint or stuff like that. What's more common and not near as common now is you would hear a lot, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago where the guys were out in the woods camping and they hike back to their camp and they get there and their food is basically, they've gone through all their food and eaten and left. Right. So, you know, lock your food up, lock mm-hmm. it inside your truck, uh, you know, leave a cooler of water out, leave bottles of water out and put a sign that says, help yourself, thank you. Yeah. You know, do it in Spanish. I mean, that goes a long way if someone needs a drink. Yeah, oh, um, for sure. You know, but kind of keeping your wits about you, just like if you're hunting in bear country, as far as you kind of are aware of, of you monitor who's coming, who's going, you, you know, if you see anything suspicious, you're going to report it. Mm-hmm. As far as on the Sonora side, um, all the traffic's going north. So, you know, we, we're going south and we're going on locked ranches, gates are locked. You know, the Mexican rancher has a ton of pull, has a ton of clout. Uh, you know, most of the trouble, so to speak, is going from Mexico into the U.S. And most of the trouble is within, say, 10 to 15 miles of the border. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot of units that you can pick that are, you know, 30, 40, 50 miles, 60, 70 miles north of the border that you're never going to have issues. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know and that's I- another question you can ask your game and fish and your forest service and the people you talk to, you say, are there areas within this specific unit that I really need to be careful and I really need to watch, uh, you know, the illegal traffic? And if they say, yeah, XYZ Canyon, you need to stay out of there. We'll find it on your map and just go, okay, and say, you know, where are the safe zones where, you know, you have a heavy border patrol, you know, where there's, there's you know, not issues. And every wildlife manager is going to be able to tell you where some of the hot spots are. And as long as you stay out of there, um, you know, it, you're going to have no issues. Well, speaking of risks, Jay, um, what about other wildlife risks like uh, like snakes or things like that? Is there anything that a Canadian person ignorant of the <laughs> desert should be concerned about? I would say in January you don't really have much to worry about with snakes. They're in hibernation. It's very, very rare for a snake to be out. Okay. You know, because a lot of times you're getting your nighttime temperatures down in the 20s, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and once once they go into hibernation, uh, they don't come out. Um, so as far as the you know risk of, of snakes or scorpions or you know <laughs> stuff like that, it's it's not really anything I think about now. Granted, if I hunt down there in October or hunt down there in August, yeah, you got rattlesnakes you know all over the place and and what have you. But that's one thing about December and January is your weather's usually so good. There's no snake. You don't have to worry about any of that. Mm-hmm. You know, what bears are there, usually they're in hibernation. Um, the weather's usually beautiful, 25, you know, mid-20s and a low, up to the 70s during the high. And um, it's just be- 
beautiful, beautiful country for sure. So on your on the hunts that you're doing, is it mostly Northerners that you see, or or who who's going down there? Um, if you're talking about uh, the coot deer hunt mm-hmm. in Sonora, Mexico, uh, most of our hunts are anywhere from say an hour to say five hours south of the border. Uh, have ranches leased all over a couple hundred thousand acres, uh, probably fifteen or so different properties, maybe more. Uh, uh, you know, big ranches. Uh, you know, ranging from say ten thousand acres to you know thirty, forty thousand acres. Okay. Um, they call them hectares down there. Uh, it's basically uh, uh, 2.2 uh, acres per hectare. So if you have a thousand hectare ranch, it's going to be 2,200 acres. Um, to answer your question, who's going down? Mm. Most of the time, it's people from the U.S. Uh, I would say it's a mix of 50% of the people are from Arizona and 50% of the people come from all over the United States. I uh, have, have had some groups of guys from Canada come down and do Gould's turkey hunt uh, with with us and, um, you know, people from all walks of life, to be honest with you. Okay. So, Jay, just for a new guy going down there and finding his way around, like we talked about the Fish and Game Office, where I imagine you could pick up maps and stuff, is there any kind of online or iPhone app that you can get that kind of shows you the areas you can and cannot hunt if you're on your own? Um, really, you can... Eighty-seven percent public land. Oh wow! And oh, so wow. It, it's, it's the majority, eighty-three or eighty-seven percent. I think it's seventeen percent private. So that'd be eighty-three percent public land. So um, any of your National Forest Service maps uh, are going to show you your national forest ground. It's going to show you your BLM ground, your state ground. That's all huntable. Uh, on those maps, there's going to be white sections. And those white sections are typically private. Now, there's a lot of ranches in southern Arizona that are private, but they let people hunt them just like it's public. Um, and then, you know, some of it will be talking to the wildlife managers about, is this private ranch accessible or not accessible? Some people allow, you know, walk-in traffic only. But one of the beauties about Arizona is that there's 80-plus 80, 80 percent of the ground in the whole state is huntable, completely open to the public. So it's not near like concern at any other state you would hunt where there's all kinds of private and there's all kinds of, you know, no-go zones. Um, In general, you can pretty much go and hunt anywhere you want. Okay. And I was also... I use the Topo Map program. It's the Phil Endicott um, Topo Map. You can get it like six bucks and it has the whole United States. Um, It has the full-blown 1 to 24,000 Topo uh, map uh, on your iPhone. Um, I use Google Earth a ton uh, mm-hmm. on my computer as well as on my handheld device. Uh, and um, those are the and and then I use Onyx Maps. I've been really really impressed when Onyx Maps okay. first came out. Uh, to me, it was a big dud. Um, I, I was very very disappointed with the the, the time that it took to download. Um, the time when you were in the field it took to. Uh, you know, get the map to come up. Um, I started using it again this fall. It had been a couple year gap since I used it when they first came out, and I would say Onyx Maps is fantastic. It shows you private and public. Um, it shows you who owns the private. Uh, it shows you all the roads. You can switch back and forth from topographical to aerial. Um, very, very big supporter and proponent of 
on X Maps. I've got no affiliation with them at all, um, but I, I, I'm really impressed with the way that the speed and everything that those maps uh, have been able to uh, load and such on my iPad and on my phone. Okay. Um, now, when we go down, we'll have to talk to you some more after to see what you recommend, but we're looking at the kind of the uh, Casa Grande Tucson area. And I really realize um, all the units are a little bit different. But just speaking generally, like how is it for road ATV access in a lot of the units? And like how much should a guy expect to put on foot when you're uh, hunting coos deer? Let me back up just for a second for you. If you're planning to hunt coos deer, you're going to need to be further south than Casa Grande. You're going to need to be like from from about Tucson south. Casa Grande, there's, there's really no coos deer in Casa Grande. That's a little too close to Phoenix, okay. <laughs> but between Tucson and Phoenix is basically, you know, a hundred mile stretch and Casa Grande's about in the middle. That would be more of your mule deer country, more of your desert flat. Um, you're going to need to be more, uh, say, uh, in unit 33, you know, around the Catalinas or the Rencons in 33, or even south of Tucson in unit 34A in the Santa Rita's. Uh, or 34B in the Whetstones, or, or you know the Wachukas in 35A, uh, or 35B, um, you know, or the you know Dos Cabezas. There's a whole bunch of mountain chains, kind of from about Tucson south. That's where I would focus. Okay. Um, what was what was the other question? Um, just wondering what the access is like around, like what to expect for how deep you can get in on a pickup truck or ATV, or is a lot of it just foot access only? No, you can get a. There's a ton of track roads all over southern Arizona. Most are completely accessible by a four-wheel drive pickup. Uh, obviously, we use rangers and quads just because you can double time it. It is sometimes rough, um, but there's lots of cooster hunting that you can do right from a two-wheel drive vehicle from, you know, ma- maintained county-type roads, um, but certainly there are lots of areas <coughs> excuse me, that you can access through uh, with a with a quad or a ranger in those two track roads uh, as well, and those would be questions I would be asking the wildlife managers. Okay. 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 Sounds great. Good. So we'll be able to beat the heck out of our rental car down there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know lots of guys that do. <laughs> well. What we can talk about now, Jay, is uh, just a different options for hunters going down, uh, obviously being guided and non-guided. Uh, what would you say, just um, off the top of your head, the difference between the two is success rate? Well, I think it's a steep, pretty steep learning curve for someone coming down that doesn't even know where to go and has never seen a coos deer, whereas if you hire a guide and they not only you know have seen a lot of coos deer, they know how to kill them, they know exactly where to go, they know exactly where to glass, they know the areas of higher density, lower density, they know the water holes that the deer frequently use. Um, you know, I think one of the challenges you're going to run into when you come down and only have seven days is you really need to focus in on a specific area, and I think that's what a guide can do because they're going to take you to their honey holes. They're going to take you to places where they've gone and had success in the past. Gotcha. Uh, whereas if you come on your own, it's going to be a little bit overwhelming. Mm-hmm. One bit of advice I can give you is don't let it be overwhelming. Try and hone in and get specific and focus on certain areas. If you start seeing deer, you know, dive in deeper and just keep going from there. But do a lot of homework before you come down. Talk to a lot of people and try and, you know, extract as much information about specifically where to go. Um, but that's 
Wyoming and Arizona, you know, that, that can really help. Uh, we also offer fully guided and do-it-yourself packages in Mexico. Um, the one thing that, that I would say makes Sonora, Mexico a much better uh, haunt is you have usually a lot more bucks to chase and you have no other people or no other competition on the ranches with you. Um, and then from a guided perspective, you know, you have me and Dar and some of our guys, if you're talking specifically going with us, uh, who have done it for many, many years and are, you know, honed in and, and dialed in on what we're looking for. And we're not just looking to kill a buck. We're looking to kill, you know, trophy bucks. Right. Um, and, and then our do-it-yourself packages um, in Mexico are, are much of the same of what we've been talking about. But you basically cross the border yourself. You get to the ranch yourself. And uh, you get up on high knobs and do your glassing and find the deer. And then, But what you're dealing with in Mexico is deer that aren't pressured. Um, right. They're still as wary and still as wily as can be, but you have more opportunity to not be hunting pressured deer. You can leave a deer and know that you can go for five days and come back, and he's probably gonna, you're you know you're going to be able to find him again. That nobody else has shot him right. from public land. You know, if you leave a deer and, and let him go, or you know, you never know if someone else came there and shot him the next day, and then you're looking for a deer that's already gone. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, if you had to pick one camel pattern only for coos deer hunting, what would it be? Coos bias. Okay. Uh, favorite boots? Uh, the boots I like right now are on a solo fugitive uh, or ocelope. They're made in uh, Sweden. Sweden or... Anyway, they're made in a Scandinavian country. No, okay. they're made in Romania. Excuse me. Oh, uh, okay. Um, o- o- ocelope, it's A-S... A-L-O, and the brand is uh, Fugitive. Okay. They're real lightweight, um, synthetic. Um, and those are the ones I would use in the desert for coos deer. I really like the Kuyu Rebel Ks, um, but they're a synthetic boot as well, but they're real super technical and not what I would be using for coos deer in, in southern Arizona. Okay. Gotcha. Okay, favorite backpack? Uh, Kuyu 7200 Icon Pro. Okay. Okay. And uh, kind of switching gears here, we've been talking archery most of the time, but we always like to ask all our guests, uh, what's your favorite rifle caliber, and uh, what does your rifle setup look like? I shoot a two, my favorite is a two fifty seven Weatherby. Um, I've been shooting that same gun for a long, long time. I've got a Swarovski uh, four and a half to 18 scope on it. Um, I'm still shooting the old TDS reticles. Um, but it's a very, very accurate rifle, and, and um, I would definitely recommend anyone cooster hunting uh, shoot as flat a shooting gun as they can shoot. You know, the, the 6.5 Creedmoor is coming on, you know, strongly. A lot of guys like, but I, I still love that 257 Weatherby. Great. Okay, what about your bow setup? What are you shooting? I'm right now shooting an Impulse 34. Um, it's a year and a half or two years old. Um, I had a elk tag in Utah, not this season, but last, and I, uh, got a new bow for that, and, um, really like the way it feels. I'm, I'm pretty high on that bow. Okay. So, uh, for the Q's deer, like, what kind of ranges, uh, do you hunt out to if you're doing spot and stock? Is it similar to mule deer, where you have to reach out a little bit further? If you're talking rifle hunting, um, we shoot them between three and five hundred yards. Uh, if we, our motto is if we find a big deer that we want to kill, uh, speaking about a rifle, we do not like to get within 300 yards of that deer. Uh, there's just so much that can go 
strong mm-hmm. if you get inside of that 300-yard window. So most of our rifle hunts in Sonora, we shoot them between three and 500 yards. They never even know we're there. Um, when you get inside that 300 yards, you get a you know you get a whole different animal. You get a whole different you know wary deer that you know hears everything around them, and that can be very difficult. Which leads me to if you guys are going to come down and hunt deer and chase them around with your bows, you need to get a thing called sneaky feet. Okay, I've heard of and, those. And it's they're they're made by Sneak Tech. Okay. And I have no affiliation with them other than I use them and they're fantastic and it gives you a lot of padding and it makes your stock a lot quieter. Okay. okay. Now how about bow range? What should a guy be uh, competent to with a bow? Well, I would say if you're spotting and stocking, you know, realistically you better be able to shoot at, you know, 50 and 60 yards okay. and okay. even further. Uh, I'm not huge into into that. If you're sitting water, you know, I would definitely be competent to, you know, 40, 50 yards, for sure. Okay. Gotcha. Right on, Jay. Well, thank you very much for uh, joining us on the podcast here. I've learned a ton. I think we all have. For all our listeners out there, I know uh, you have a website, as well as you're on Instagram. Anywhere else we can find you, or are you going to be in any shows this year? I'm actually going to the Western uh, Honey Convention there in uh, Western Expo in Salt Lake City. Okay. Um, And I'm actually going back east to the... um, uh, NWTF uh, convention in Nashville I'm, uh, with my Gould's Turkey business. Okay. Uh, but yeah, they can, uh, if they want to find out more or, or get in touch with me, they can uh, go to my website, jscottoutdoors.com. They can follow on my Instagram, at jscottoutdoors. And of course, uh, I have my own podcast. I have, I think, 391 episodes. Uh, I'm, I'll be going on my third year here in February. And, um, it's just the J. Scott Outdoors Western Big Game Hunting and Fishing Podcast. And, um, yeah, guys, I uh, wish you the best of success with your podcast. And thanks for all the great questions. And uh, would love to come on again and, and, and uh, chat with you about anything else. And just wish you uh, great, great success with uh, your endeavor. We'll be in touch for yeah, sure. Th- thanks again, Jay. Really appreciate it. Take care. Okay, guys. Take all right. care. All right. I hope you knock them dead when you come down here, okay? <laughs> we hope so. <laughs> yeah, we hope for so. Sure. All right, Jay, have a good trip to Mexico. Okay, sounds good.